Hi there, precious friends. A couple of sessions ago in our series on bitterness from blight to blessing, we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. It says this, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Tucked away there in verse 14 is a simple anecdote for bitterness. It's a solution. So get your Bible and let's talk about it. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and let's look at verse 14. It gives us this instruction. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue is a strong word. We are to make an intentional, strong choice to pursue peace with everybody, with all people and holiness. So we are to run swiftly toward holiness. Let's look at the phrase, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, see the Lord here is not talking about going to heaven. Um, we're, we know about positional holiness, and certainly saved people are going to go to heaven, and we're going to see the Lord in all of his fullness because he has imparted his holiness, the holiness of Christ, to us. So we are holy because God has given us that holiness. And so we will see God in heaven. And we're going to think about this for just a minute. In Matthew chapter five and verse eight, in the Sermon on the Mount, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And in verse eight of that chapter, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now he had already said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, first thing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's a person, as the Beatitudes progressed, here's a person who has already been saved, and Jesus, in the whole Sermon on the Mount, is concerned with the heart of the believer. So the heart is who you are. It's the secret place of your thoughts and feelings that only God knows. Scripture tells us that out of our hearts come the words of our mouths and evil thoughts and murder and adultery and thefts and lies. And so Jesus is not just about fixing our bad habits. He is about cleansing, purifying our dirty hearts. Why would he do that? Why would he be interested in that? Because that's the way we see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he says, these people here in verse 14, when we pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So the Lord is concerned about us seeing him. So we want to see him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to have access into his presence. It means to commune with him, to have fellowship with him. If I called my doctor's office today and said, I need to see the doctor. Well, what would I want him to do? 
Would I want him to look through the window and wave at me? Would I want to just see him going down the hall? I would see him. What do I want? I want to engage him. I want to have conversation with him. You know, I don't want to just glance at him from a distance or see a picture of him or, or just, uh, just wave. But I want to have an encounter with him. I want to have a conversation with him. I want to communicate with him. So to see God in this life is to encounter him. It's to engage him. It's to communicate with him in a way that we stand in awe of him. Maybe you've had moments like that. You know, after God confronted Job in a whirlwind, Job said, I had heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, and I repent in dust and ashes. So like Isaiah, when we see the Lord, when we get that vision, that glimpse of God and who he is, we realize our sin. We realize our need for repentance. And so we've got spiritual sight of the Lord that we get from the word of God. We see reflections of his glory in nature, in the lives of people. We hear echoes of his voice in various ways. But there are times in our lives when he will allow himself to be encountered, experienced. And there may be an inward impression of something remarkable, something he wants us to do, something he wants us to tell us. Um, We may have an incredible awareness of his presence. You just know, or you just know in your heart that he has shown you something, that he has given you an instruction, that he has said something to you. We know when he is speaking to our hearts, and those are precious, special moments in time. And so over and over, the psalmists cry out to God that he not hide his face from them. Psalm 27, verses 7 through 9, David prays, Hear, O Lord, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not thy face from me. So that's the kind of seeing the Lord this is talking about. So experiencing the face of the Lord is a sweet and comforting experience. It settles us. It assures us we want to be there. So when Jesus talks about our seeing God, he's talking about our communing together, communing with God, engaging God. So the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace and holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Now, I really think that means two things. I believe, first of all, it means that if I do not pursue holiness or peace and holiness, then I'm going to be hindered in my fellowship and my communion with the Lord. But secondly, if I don't pursue peace and holiness, then I'm not revealing Christ to others. No one will be able to see him if he is not revealed through his people. So I think there's some of both things here. Um, We need to position ourselves and to seek peace and holiness so that those around us can see Christ in us, so that we are like him. Well, if I am pursuing peace with all people, it means that I love people. If I am pursuing holiness with God, then that means I love God. 
because I want to do the things that please him. Kind of reminds me when Jesus summarized all of the commandments with two. What did he say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. And secondly, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is my neighbor? Anybody. Anybody I encounter, anybody that I engage, that I run across. So here I am with God telling me that he has given me his word and his grace to forgive somebody that I really don't think needs to be forgiven. Someone who has done me dirty may still be doing me dirty and isn't even sorry. So here I am with God telling me to pursue peace with somebody that I really would rather smack silly. So how am I going to respond? What they did was wrong. Yes, it was. And God says, look, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to take me at my word? And you know what he says? I want you to see me. I want you to engage me, to fellowship with me, to commune with me. I want to be able to use you for the purpose that I intend. And so this is about life being choked out of you if you will not let this go. So I say, okay, Lord, how do I do this? When my heart gets to that place, then I am seeking the Lord. When I say to him, okay, how do I get there? Then I'm seeking God. And God's word tells us that if we seek him with all of our hearts, we will surely find him. There's another verse that I love. It says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and return unto the Lord and he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. So there's a lot in the Bible about seeking the Lord. And so there are times in our lives when he will allow himself to be found by us. A pure heart is not a flawless heart. A pure heart is a heart that seeks God. It is an undivided heart. And so James tells us in chapter 4 and verse 8, draw nigh or draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So this is the invitation here. You, we're going to pursue peace and holiness. Those are anecdotes to bitterness. And in that process, our bitterness is going to be settled because we see God. We engage him. We fellowship with him. We commune with him. He is ready for us to do that. He is waiting for us to commune with him. So let's see if we can get kind of a mind picture here. I got this idea from Bruce and Tony Hebel's book, Forgiving Forward. If you would like to read more about forgiveness, that would be a great choice of a book for you to read, Forgiving Forward. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to just imagine a table. Imagine a table that is set with five seats. Three of them are occupied by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
One seat is for me, the wounded one, the offended one. So I'm seeking the Lord, and he allows me to come into his communing presence. And so I get there, and I sit down in his presence. And I'm transparent with him. I can trust him. I can be open with him. And so I can say something like, you know, what so-and-so did was wrong. Let's pick a name, Billy. What Billy did was wrong. And it hurts, and I'm having trouble not thinking about it. I don't know how to let it go. And so I can then say to God, but I, I know you forgave those who nailed you to the cross. I know that you have forgiven me, and I thank you. I don't deserve it, but I accept it. I receive it from you, and I thank you. And I come to you, you, this is between you and the Lord. I come to you to forgive the one who has sinned against me. I'm choosing to forgive because of you. I'm choosing to forgive because you have commanded it, and I want to obey you as an act of worship because of who you are. I place my wound, my hurt, under the blood of Jesus. The choice to forgive is not a long, drawn-out process. Some want to think that healing has to be complete before forgiveness takes place. Some people think, I just need to get over it so that I can forgive them. No. Some try to work their way toward forgiveness and have been doing it for years and years and years. God's forgiveness of us is not slow. He never says, well, let's wait and see. Or he never says, well, you know, I'm still hurt that you sinned against me. I'm still in the process and I'm just not quite ready. No. What does God do? God extends his grace to us as a transaction at a moment in time. So we can do the same thing as an expression of our faith and our desire to please God. See, forgiveness is really about me and God. It's not about me and that other person. So the willingness to forgive is the first step toward healing. The moment of forgiveness, that transaction, is followed by a process of healing and restoration. That process won't begin until we make the transaction, until we make the choice to forgive. Forgiveness itself is not a process, but the healing and the restoration is. So it is a transaction before God. So we will say to him, you forgive by the power. No, I'm sorry. You forgive by the power of the Holy Spirit with the very grace and forgiveness that you have received. So that's what you say to God. You have given me the grace. I want to be the conduit. So this is between us. So what do we do? We set our eyes on the Lord. We bow before him in his presence and we say, I choose to forgive Billy for whatever the hurt was, whatever the wounded. And you need to do them one at a time. You don't just need to say, 
I forgive Billy for everything. No, deal with each one before the Lord. So this is not about Billy. This is not about the person who hurt you. This is about you and God. So as you stay at this table with him, the fruits of forgiveness are going to begin to blossom. Your heart will grow tender. Your words will grow softer. Your countenance will lose its edge of anger. And peace, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, goodness, patience begin to permeate your life as you are communing with God and receiving those things from him. And you know what? You get closure. Closure right there. You will find yourself being able to walk into the next day without that burdensome weight of needing to fight back, without that burdensome weight of conflict, without that burdensome weight of mm, watching to see what he's going to do. Because you know what? God will do that for you. God will do that for you. So we're at a table here for five. Three seats are occupied by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One is occupied by the wounded party. The fifth chair is for the one who did the wounding. The fifth chair is the one who did the wounding. Now, the wounded is willing to come to the table and bring that wound to the Lord and put it under the blood of Jesus. So this fifth chair is for the one who has hurt you. Now, understand that he or she may come to the table or may not. But it's there. It's available. You know, I was confused for a long time about reconciliation because I continued to think that if forgiveness had taken place, uh, reconciliation would immediately follow. And I tended to see forgiveness and reconciliation as the same thing. Some people think that our forgiveness is dependent upon whether or not the offender is sorry. And so take the attitude, they take the attitude that I will forgive when he's sorry. I will forgive when he confesses to me. You know, that, you know, we are under no obligation to forgive unless they repent. Now think about that. Because if we think that way and they never repent, we lock ourselves into a state of unforgiveness. And unforgiveness brings torment. So I don't want to get in that place. Besides, that's not how God relates to us. When God chose to forgive us, it was before the foundation of the world. That's when he made the decision to forgive before the foundation of the world. And so then, after he chose to forgive, he makes repentance available to us. He makes it available for us to be reconciled. But he doesn't, his forgiveness is not dependent on that. So forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Here's the summary. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness is applying the blood of Jesus as payment in full for any and every wound I have ever encountered or ever will encounter. 
We live lives of forgiveness. That's our choice. Reconciliation requires two things or two people. It requires forgiveness from the one who was wounded. And it requires repentance from the one who did the wounding, from the offender. So you're going to need one who will forgive and one who will repent. If the offender doesn't come to the table with a repentant heart, you are not reconciled, even though you have forgiven. You're not reconciled with the offender. The good news is that your forgiveness has granted you that presence with the Lord. It has nothing to do with your presence in God's fellowship. So our forgiveness must be based on the cross of Christ alone. The cross of Christ and nothing else. An unrepentant person is thinking wrongly. Remember uh, that repentance is a change of mind. Uh, I change how I'm thinking about my behavior or what I've done. And so that, that's repentance. So if I am not repenting, if repentance is not a part of my lifestyle, then I'm not thinking right. So an unrepentant person is thinking wrongly. So God calls us to his fellowship, to his table, where there is a chair for the offending party. So we go to God and we forgive the offender and we wait. You know, sometimes the Father may send the Holy Spirit to bring the offender to repentance. Forgiveness might set that in motion. But if the offender never repents, you still have your place at the table enjoying the company of the Trinity and all of the things that accompany that. Your place is secure. So the instruction of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 is pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now Romans 12 verses 17 through 19 give us some instruction and clarification and we may uh, look at that passage on another day, but it says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So on your part, offer peace, not conflict. Sometimes the other person doesn't want peace doesn't want reconciliation. I am responsible for my part. I am not responsible for that person's decision. If they don't come to the table, it's not for you to worry about. It's not for you to worry about. You are going to continue to release forgiveness and experience fellowship with God. And they're going to do their thing. So, we are often misled by the common assumption that forgiveness and good feelings always go hand in hand. Mm -mm. Happy endings are not guaranteed. You may have honestly 
genuinely trusted the Lord to help you forgive your offender. You've laid it all out before the Lord. You've released it to the Lord and you've given to the Lord your right to punish the offender. You've given that to him. But sometimes something happens that will remind you of the wound. And when that happens, your emotions start to heat up and you start recounting what happened and you're tied up in knots and you think, well, I must not have forgiven them. Now listen, forgiveness cannot be proven by feelings. Forgiveness cannot be proven by feelings. Forgiveness is a choice and feelings are not. So it is possible to totally forgive somebody in the right way and still have thoughts flash across your mind that completely contradict the decision that you made. Forgiveness is not something that once it's done, you never think about it again. Life goes on. Satan can put thoughts in your mind. Do you know that all of your thoughts are not your thoughts? Do you know that Satan, like an arrow, can put a thought in your mind? He wants to remind you of those bad things, of those hurts. But those things, those feelings do not negate the transaction you made with God. That's why it's probably really a good idea that when you make this transaction with God, when you say to God, I choose to believe Billy for this, you write it down and date it. So that when these thoughts and these emotions come up, you can go back and look and say right here, uh-huh, that would Bill was paid it was paid by Jesus, paid in full, and I bought into that. So you've got a day in time. So then you're going to give those emotions to God. You're going to say, God, I'm feeling crazy stuff here. Stay the course. Focus on the Lord. Forgive by faith. And bring your feelings in line with God's word. Turn with me for just a minute as we close to the Gospel of Luke Chapter 15, this is the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you're familiar with it. But Jesus is sharing this parable with his disciples. So he's talking to believers. And we don't have time to go through the whole story. I just want to make one point with you. But the gist of it is that a man had two sons, and one son took his share of the inheritance and left home. He took a journey into reckless living. He squandered his resources. His life was a mess, and he wound up eating with pigs. And one day, it dawned on him what had happened, where he was, what he, is, what he was doing. And so he finally then decided to go back home to his father, to his father's table, if you will. So look with me at Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. And he, the prodigal son, got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, kill the fatted calf, kill it, and let's eat and be merry. Let's have a party. For this son of mine was dead, separated from me, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they begin to be merry. This is a picture of reconciliation. We have here one who is willing to forgive the Father and one who is willing to repent. One who saw the mess he was in and was willing to go to the table to sit down with his father, those whom he had offended, and say, I'm home. I have sinned. Will you forgive me? So we've got a wounded, and we've got a repenter. Which one are you? Find your seat at the Lord's table, and he will meet you there. God bless you.